morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed to Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time. Thank you to those of you who are leading them. Um, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, how many of you are traveling this week, going out of town? About half. Great. Hope you have a wonderful time and a really, really Merry Christmas. We've got a ton to do today in a uh, long psalm, so go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 118, and we will go ahead and jump in together. As Austin said, uh, we'll be looking at a very famous psalm today and discussing its implications, particularly on the life of Christ and on us. Uh, If you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, it's, uh, um, yes, in one sense, a, a book that you hold, but in another sense, it's more like a, a library than a single book. The Bible is a collection of 66 separate books that were written separately and later uh, combined, and it tells the story of a lengthy period of time, including today. So what we're wanting to do in this series is connect these Psalms, which for many people, even if they haven't spent much time in the Bible, you're familiar with at least some of these. These were the songs or the prayers of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we're wanting in this series to show how these ancient stories actually referenced and spoke about Jesus Christ who came much later. So that's basically what we're trying to do this year for Christmas. So we're in Psalm 118. I'll read it in just a moment. A few introductory kind of comments. Um, have you ever had an expectation of God? You ever had a specific expectation of something you thought that God was going to do? Most of us have, whether we call ourselves Christians or not. Maybe your expectation was that if you faced the horror of a mastectomy, then the cancer would be gone completely. That'd be it. Maybe it was an expectation you had that a particular family member, if you prayed for them, would come to Christ. Maybe it was the expectation that if you worked really hard, then you'd get into that specific grad school that you were hoping for. Maybe it was an expectation that if you prayed, quote, the sinner's prayer, then life would get a lot better, easier. Things would go more smoothly. We all have expectations. And sometimes those expectations are put on God. And we think of God as the person who's going to fulfill those expectations. This psalm, Psalm 118, is about expectation. And uh, today we're going to consider what exactly it expects and how that impacts the expectations that we have. But it's both right and good to expect God to do things, right? That's not a bad thing. God's honored when we celebrate and when we sing to him as the God who delivers us and meets expectations. There's no point of having faith in God if you're not going to expect things from him. What's the point of faith then? But what's challenging about expectations really comes down to two things. First, it's the waiting game. It's, God, I believe you've said you're going to do this, and yet it's not happening on my timetable. Have you been there? Some kind of expectation that we believe God's going to fulfill And then he doesn't end the time frame that we wanted. That's difficult. That's a hard thing to go through. 
The other thing, of course, is sometimes our expectations are not at all what God has actually promised. And so today in this long psalm, uh, we're going to try to summarize the ideas that it contains and ask, is this what I'm expecting, something that God's promised, but it just hasn't come true yet? Or am I counting on something that isn't something God ever promised all along? Waiting for God to fulfill expectations is hard, even when what we're waiting for, God has clearly promised. So today, Psalm 118 is both a psalm of expectation and God meeting those expectations. So let's read it together, Psalm 118. Uh, Today I'm going to use the New Living. It makes a couple of points especially clear. It'll be on the screen. Give thanks to God, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let all Israel repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, meaning the priests, repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, His faithful love endures forever. It's almost like we're supposed to be remembering something. Three times. Verse 5. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Though hostile nations surround me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them with all the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees. They blazed around me like a crackling fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm, which we talked about last week. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely but he did not let me die. Do you hear all the expectations here? It's just full of them. I expected that God would do this because he promised, and here's how he came through. Verse 19, open for me the gates. This would have been the gates into the temple that was in Jerusalem. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter. I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead me to the presence of the Lord. And the godly enter there. I thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. 
That is a long psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. There's more here than we could ever get to today, but I want to plan together with you to really address three kind of movements, if you will. First, just want to talk for a few minutes about how this psalm was used. And again, if we think historically along not a single author writing the Bible at one time, but it being stretched over 1,500 years, roughly 75 authors, three languages, and yet tells a consistent story, we'll try and show briefly through the ages how this has been used. And that will help set us up then to see, second, what it's about. What ultimately are these 29 verses about? And then finally, where's Jesus? This psalm gives some beautiful pictures of Jesus, and we'll take a couple of minutes to look at each of those together. Now, a warning, briefly, uh, this particular sermon is going to require some some thought. So I know it's Sunday morning, it's December, you likely had way more cookies last night than you should have, Christmas cookies. So um, just hang with me, and there are some images here that honestly are life-changing, if we can really grasp them. Psalm 118 is one of the most famous psalms in the whole Bible. So as we consider how it was used, we'll think first about how the Israelites used it, and then how Jesus used it, and finally, just a brief mention of how it's been used throughout church history. So first, how did the Israelites use this psalm? I'm really excited to tell you about this today. There's some things I learned this week that I never have seen before. Uh, over time, Psalm 113 through 118 became known as the Egyptian Hallel. So turn to somebody with you, next to you, and say, Egyptian Hallel. I know you've already said that this morning, but go ahead. Egyptian Hallel. Now, do you have any idea what you just said? No, none of us talk like that, right? But the significance of that group of psalms is huge. Hallel means praise. So the Hebrews thought of these psalms as a certain collection of psalms or songs used to praise God for his rescuing of them out of Egypt. These were songs about or looking back on God's delivering of the Israelites from Egypt and rescuing them and delivering them into the promised land. If that's not a story you're familiar with, don't feel bad. That's okay. There's always a time to get started in learning the Bible. Today's the day for you. So if you don't have a Bible, take the one that's in the chair in front of you. Take it home. Start reading it this week. The story of Egypt's deliverance out of Egypt is the second book in the Bible. It's the book of Exodus. It's the Exodus out of Israel, out of Egypt and into Israel. Now, all of that to say, in other words, just like you have expectations of God, the people in the Bible had expectations of God. And if you were an Israelite who was a slave in Egypt, what was your expectation? It was that God was going to rescue you out of Egypt and give you into a land called Israel. That was their expectation. God did it. So if we fast forward a long time, around 400 years or so, Israel has left Egypt, they've come into the nation of Israel, and they've started using these psalms as a way of remembering God delivering them. 
you didn't just show up uh, here today. You come from a story. You come from a people, a people who have stories about what has happened in their lives. And those have made you who you are, whether you recognize it or not. One of the most important things parents do or caregivers do is teach their children, here's your heritage, here's where you've come from. And that's how these psalms were used. But they were used at a particular time of year. It was called Passover. The Passover was when God rescued the people out of Egypt. You still with me? I told you you got to think today. A few of you are glossing over. But all of this is going to be very helpful for us to understand the psalm. Every year, the, the Jews would have something called Passover. It was a way of reinforcing in their hearts that God is good and his love would endure forever. It wasn't an abstract history lesson like you get at school. It was a truth that was meant to fuel their daily dependence on God. And so what would happen is they would get together, they would read or sing or memorize Psalm 113, 114, they would say them out loud, then they would celebrate this meal called Passover, and then they would sing the rest of them. Psalm 115, 116, 117, they would end with 118. God had met their expectations. He delivered them out of slavery. And so their remembering of that event was meant to remind them that God would stay faithful to his word in their day. It wasn't the stuff of folktale. It was the reason for confident faith today. That, by the way, must be the basis of our expectations today. That what God promised in the Bible is what God will stay faithful to today. So every single year, this is what they would do. It was a rhythm of remembering God's, characters, God's character and his actions. God's character and his actions. So imagine just with a snap, it's been a thousand years. God's people have gathered every year and done that. They've sung these psalms. They've celebrated the Passover. They've remembered God delivering them. And on comes Jesus. Jesus would have sung this psalm with his disciples as they celebrated Passover. That's kind of cool to think about, isn't it? Jesus himself would have memorized these words, gathered his 12, and together remembered God delivering the people out of Egypt. Now that's going to become important in a few minutes. File that away. This was a massively significant psalm. Jesus quoted from Psalm 118 and applied it to himself. So not only did Jesus look back on it and remember what God did, but in another sense he said, this is coming true, this is being fulfilled in me. And we'll get back to that in a minute. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. It became one of the central images of the church. And then if we think about how it's been used throughout church history, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s, said this was his favorite psalm. Martin Luther was a guy that faced nearly insurmountable obstacles. The reason that you and I hold a Bible in our hands the reason that there are churches like ours is ultimately because God used a man named Martin Luther, a monk who was wrapped up in his own guilt 
teaching the Old Testament, but yet not finding any fulfillment. God saved him, and then he used him tremendously. Here's what he said about this psalm. Here's a quote. This is my own beloved psalm. Although the entire Psalter, not what you put on your food, this a way of talking about the Old Testament, the Psalms in particular. The entire Psalter, all of the Holy Scriptures, are dear to me as my only comfort and source of life. I fell in love with this Psalm especially. Therefore, I call it my own. When emperors and kings and wise and learned and even saints could not aid me, this Psalm proved a friend and helped me out of many great troubles. As a result, it is dearer to me than all the wealth and honor and power of the Pope, the Turk, and the Emperor. In other words, everybody in power in his day. I would be most unwilling to trade this psalm for all of it. Perhaps the same can be true of us today. Then that's how it's been used. So what is this psalm about? Well, honestly, this is one of the easier passages of Scripture to, to say very clearly Here's what it's saying. It it says it over and over and over. It starts with it and ends with it. If you fell asleep in that long middle part, you still caught it. It's simply this. Verse 1 says it. Verse 29 says it. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We have a tremendous responsibility as God's people to worship God. And call each other to worship God. And that's what this psalm was. It was an announcement to worship God. That's what Tim started our morning together with. By saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And then if you look at verse 2 closely, what it is, is a, a calling on all of the people specifically to worship God. So let me read 2, 3, and 4 again. Just to reinforce it. Let all Israel repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat. Why don't you say it with me? His faithful love endures forever. It's almost like whoever wrote this psalm thought people might forget things. So they just said it over and over and over. I wonder if you see our Sunday mornings together as an occasion to do that, to simply gather with other people and say, God's faithful love endures forever. Friends, we are people who meet all kinds of difficulties, crises, hardships, and daily distractions. And the rhythm of gathering weekly to say to one another, God's love endures forever. That's what God's people have been doing for millennia. And just like they were prone to forget, we are too. And so when we gather, we're trying increasingly to build rhythms into our gathering that not just the content, but even the approach to them, the the order of them reminds us of the gospel, reminds us of how good God is. Maybe you're noticing that or picking up on it. We, we start by calling each other to worship God. And then we always move into a song that teaches us, reminds us that God's a good God. He's worthy of praise. We adore him together. That's the way 
God calls us to worship Him. Are you following me? We're trying to model for each other, week in and week out, that God is a God that's worthy of worship. This, this uh, fall, we spent much of our fall together walking through the Lord's Prayer. That's what that Lord's Prayer does. It announces worship and calls us into praise of God. Brian Murphy is building our gathering each week and doing such a great job of that. Thank you, brother. Austin and Amber are guiding us as we sing. Praise to God always comes first. Now, with the room even only half full or three-fourths full today, there's got to be somebody here that's saying right now mentally, why should I worship God? I had this expectation of God, and here's what happened. It's not anything like I expected. And friend, if that's not you today, it might be in some time in the future. And so perhaps these remarks would be helpful to you. Why should we give thanks to God? Notice what the psalmist answer isn't. It isn't God does everything you want him to do. It isn't if you follow God, all crises and difficulty will be removed. It isn't if you love Jesus, then your cancer is guaranteed to go away. It isn't if you work really hard, then you're guaranteed to get into that grad school. It's something different. Something much more important, actually. It's God will stay faithful to what he promises to do in his word. It's something outside of us, out of the abstract, and onto the pages of Scripture. It's something you can count on that matters both in this life and in the life to come. Psalms, Psalm 118's answer of why we should give thanks and praise to God is, God is good and his love endures forever. Do you believe that? I do, but honestly, it doesn't give me warm fuzzies like it did earlier in my life. There was a season of kind of um, naivety for me as a younger Christian that I had that's not there anymore. God is good and his love endures forever, but that doesn't mean my life has turned out the way I thought it would. In fact, I'm not spending it hardly at all in the ways I expected. God is good and his love endures forever, but if my expectations of God don't match what he actually promised, and they didn't, then disappointments will come, and they have. God is good and his love endured forever, but I still battle with sin, and I sometimes fail in miserable public ways. In my early days as a Christian, I think now that I believed more in a genie than in the God of the Bible. If I just do this and rub God's belly, then he's going to give me what I want. But where there were once warm fuzzies, or emotional highs, if you will, there's now a rock-solid confidence that God is good and his love endures forever. And I have found that to be much better than the fickle emotional highs 
of everyday life. God's word, God's people, and many experiences have taught me that God is indeed good. And it's often in those most difficult things that you never wanted to have happen that you experience that the most. So that's why verse 5 to 21 are there. If we didn't need those kind of personal testimonies, then we could have just skipped all of that section. But we do. Verses 5 to 21 are the author's personal experience that God is good. For those of us in the room who are Christians, that's the kind of talk that ought to fill our conversations with one another. More than, um, and I've been, and I'm not bemoaning it, and it was great, but more than filling our conversations with Star Wars, what if much of what we said to each other is the announcement, the proclamation, the reminders of here's what God's doing. Here's who he is. Here's how he intervened in an unexpected way this week. Here's how he's being faithful even when he's not meeting what I thought he was going to do. How much richer would our relationships with one another be if that was the kind of talk that filled our mouths? Verses 5 to 21. Those of you in the room who are not yet Christians or are younger in the faith, make sure you're meeting with people regularly who are older in the faith than you are because they will have a wealth of experience to share with you. Ways in which they can share, I have found this to be true, and just walk with you, and not preach at you like I'm doing, but simply share with you ways in which God has been good and faithful to them. That's what 5 to 21 are about. What you'll find is that God is good, and that these people who walk with God have found him to be so. They won't just tell you fairy tales. So the Israelites' entire existence was rooted in this psalm. And our individual lives are all about God's love and goodness. Now the rest of Psalm 118 is about Jesus, which is amazing if you really consider this. So where's Jesus in this psalm? Let me give you three glimpses of Jesus in Psalm 118. The first one is that Jesus is the king worthy of praise. If you were here last week, we talked about a kind of brain-exploding, oozing-out-your-ear moment. Remember? Okay, I want to give you another one. This is one of those. I said earlier that this psalm was sung every year at Passover. Do you remember that much at least? Okay. So Passover was a time at looking back at God's deliverance out of Egypt and forward to when God would send the perfect king. So here's the timeline. The Israelites left Egypt in roughly 1446 BC. That was a long time ago. And so Psalm 18 was likely written around 1000 BC. So for 1000 years, everyone had memorized this psalm and repeated it over and over and over and over and over and over. And? Over. All right, you got it. Now, so back up from today to the time Jesus is walking the earth. It's Passover time, and it's Jerusalem. Everyone would have been streaming into Jerusalem. 
coming for that yearly celebration from all over Israel. Most of them lived in tiny, tiny, tiny towns. They're coming in Jerusalem to remember God rescuing them out of Egypt, but that wasn't all they were doing. You see, the nation had been rescued out of Egypt like God had promised, but now, a thousand years later, they're ruled again by a pagan, wicked people, the Romans. They are, it's almost as though they're captives, but now this time in their own land. And so in one moment, they're looking back at how God had rescued them out of Egypt, but in another, they're saying, God, you still haven't fulfilled the promise fully. We need a king. We need a better king. We need one who isn't a worshiper of false gods. We need one who doesn't claim himself to be a god. We need a perfect king. God, you got us out of Egypt, but the Romans are ruling us now. Send the promised perfect king. Are you with me? Okay. Now, there's this story, if you've ever come to church on Easter, you've heard. But it was probably disconnected from what was actually going on. Matthew 21, 6 says this. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colts and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloak, spread or spled their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from trees and spread them out on the road. Those of you who are, have been active in church a long time, what is this going to point us towards? Palm Sunday, okay? The crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There are tons of words in the Bible that when you read them, it's, whoosh, right? It just goes over our heads. We don't, if you use the word Hosanna in regular life, you are a weirdo. We don't use that word. And so as we're reading the Bible, there's so much that can be missed if we don't slow down and ask, what the heck does that mean? It has never been easier before to get great Bible information right at your fingertips. So Hosanna means, anybody know? Frankly, I didn't. I don't use that word much. Hosanna means save us now. It means save us now. So back to our timeline. All of the Jews have come to Jerusalem for Passover. What did they do in Passover? They did that Hillel thing. Now, all of this has something to do with your expectations of God. They read, they celebrated Psalm 113, Psalm 114, they did the meal thing. Then they sang, 115, 116, 117, 118. And in 118, they would have said, Hosanna, the Lord, help us. Why? Look at verse 25. 
Please, Lord, help us. Please, Lord, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Hebrew for Hosanna, praise, blessed, help us, Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so all of the Gospels quote this moment. Why? Because all of these people shouting, laying branches down, are saying, maybe this is him. Maybe after a thousand stinking years, God has finally met our expectation. Maybe this one riding in on the donkey is the perfect king. Hosanna, Lord, help us. Hello, that's pretty awesome. They're saying, maybe this is the perfect king. Now, Jesus, of course, picks that up and uses it and illustrates and becomes the perfect king. Another glimpse of Jesus in this psalm is the one that Austin referenced earlier. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone holding everything together. Look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is wonderful to see. This verse is referencing something called a cornerstone or a capstone. The focal point of an ancient building was the cornerstone. It was the very first stone laid as the foundation of a building. The entire structural integrity of the building rested upon this massive stone. It would have been gigantic, much bigger than anything else used, and all the other walls would have come back to and rested upon this corner stone. People understood the image. It's lost on us. Most of us in the room aren't builders, and those of you who are don't use one big massive stone to hold the whole building together, but, but they would have. So the imagery was, there is a foundational stone that holds and roots and protects and strengthens and guards everything. So another way this psalm was used is, after the Jews had been placed in Israel, they disobeyed, they, want, they were taken away, and if you want to read that story, it's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as they're brought back into Israel, they rebuild the temple, and they had a big party. And the party was a celebration of the cornerstone being laid again, the foundation of the temple being put back together again. The psalm was likely used and sung at the dedication of the temple. And so the Israelites were the people that were rejected. They were the small, insignificant people rejected by the world. They were viewed as foolish and silly, but here in Jerusalem stood the temple, the very place where God would dwell. Now, I'm giving you tons of history today. I wish we could spend the whole day together. None of you are running. This is a good sign. There's so much here. Christian, do you ever feel foolish? In a society built, on one hand, scientific kind of evidence. If you can't repeat it, then you can't be counted on. 
which rules out the supernatural. And on the other hand, in a society that says there is no truth, truth is simply whatever you want it to be, that is your truth. Those two worldviews dominate what we watch on TV, what we heard on the debate last night, what we read in the newspaper, what we're taught in our schools, likely the very lens through which you view the world is rooted in those two things. And in the middle of that, the Bible says, there is truth that is outside of your experience that is supernatural. And there is truth for all people everywhere. That is a recipe to feel foolish and little, is it not? The influence of Christianity is decreasing in our country. Not because of anything political. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's because cultural Christianity is dying. I actually think that's a great thing. So friends, if you feel small, have doubts, wonder, is all of this simply grandma's stories? then maybe you feel a little bit of what the Israelites might have felt. If you feel like all the power rests in the secular world, maybe you feel a little bit of what the Israelites felt. The Israelites looked and said, we have no power, except the stone is here. Friends, we might have little money, cruddy buildings, little political influence, but the stone is here. So Jesus comes along, and in the middle of him fulfilling Psalm 118, the religious leaders of his day said, I want nothing to do with you. And so Jesus told him a story, which we don't have time to go into today, but then he said this, Mark 12, 10. Have you not read this from Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus, of course, is talking there about not the big stone in the temple, but himself. He's saying that huge cornerstone that held the temple together was ultimately just a little picture of me. Ephesians 2 makes that very clear. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning Christians, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom also you are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit, all oh, that we could just stay there the whole day together. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, Israelites, for all of these years, you viewed the physical temple in Jerusalem as the place where God dwells. And it was that. But he says all along, the point wasn't that. It was what it pointed forward to. It's this. God's people are the dwelling place for God himself, because God's spirit lives in God's people. And we are being built into a house that houses God's presence. 
Not these walls, but lives rescued by Jesus Christ. Wow! You're not nearly impressed as I am. Wow! This is amazing. Amazing. Christians, God is building us into a spiritual house. The church puts God on display. That's why it matters so much how we treat each other. That's why it matters so much that we're faithful. That's why it matters so much what we do in conflict. That's why it matters so much what happens in our marriages. That's why it matters so much because God is seen through us. Now last, and I've got to do this quickly, a third glimpse of Jesus is that Jesus is the mediator giving us access to the Father. In all of these verses, there's only one request made. 29 verses, one thing asked for. It's verse 19. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter. I will go in and thank the Lord. The gates referenced here are the gates into the temple. It's a God, it's the people of God saying, God, fling open those doors. Because more than anywhere else on the planet, we want to be where you are. We want to be where you're choosing to make yourself known. We want to be with your people in your place. Now, how in the world is that possible for a sinful people? How can people be in God's place? The most just thing God could do is shut those gates and bolt them closed forever. Because a sinful people have no right to be with a holy God. But all is not lost. Because those gates ultimately pointed forward to another gate. Jesus is that gate between a holy God and a sinful people. John 10, 9 says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I hope you'll consider today if your faith is full of expectation. And are those expectations rooted, frankly, in warm fuzzies? Are they rooted in the objective stuff that God has promised he'll do? Do you know those promises? Are you trusting them? It's so important to learn your Bible because all of those expectations I voiced at the start of this sermon, none of them are things God promises. But the rest of the time, we've been talking about what he does promise. He promises to be the gate. He promises to open the way into a relationship with the Father. He promises life eternal for his people. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. He promises to mediate before the Father forever on your behalf. He promises the very most important things are secure in him. But you've got to know those promises. 
The cancer might come back. You might not get ever, ever get into that grad school. You may never get married. But God saves. And for a people who wait impatiently at the microwave, it's hard to understand the importance of eternity, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, you are caught up in something much, much, much bigger than you. You are part of the people of God saying, Hosanna. And God answers that expectation. Let's pray. Father, a a message like this is full of content. And yet we pray that this has not been just a brain dump, but an encounter with you. God, it is easy for those of us in the room who are Christians, who have no doubt a mixture of expectations that are rooted in Scripture and expectations that are just subjective, warm, fuzzy experiences. And so undoubtedly, when we go through life, there will be a give and take, a tug and pull, times of strong confidence in you and times perhaps of what feels like equally strong doubt. We will at times feel like little insignificant people. I pray today that you would use your words like you've used them for literally thousands of years to breathe confidence back into your people. I pray that my brothers and sisters right now would be praying, even as I am, and doing business with you, saying, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, we pray that we would be a people so committed to your word that we know what we can count on and that we see through all the difficulties of life with a rock-solid confidence that you are the cornerstone. I pray also, Father, for others here today who are undecided about Jesus. Thank you, God, that we're a church that people who are still investigating Christianity are are gathered with us every week. How unusual is that? We thank you for it. God, I pray that those friends of mine in the room would consider what we've said today and would do their own homework And Father, ultimately, that you'd help them see the Bible's true. And we pray as we head into Christmas this week that as we encounter many people who don't know you, that both how we act, the love that we show, the way that we give, the joy that we exude, and the words that we say about the gospel would have a powerful impact. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.